Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Adam Davies, president of the Cambridge Union, and thank you for tuning into this event. Uh, we have Professor Noam Chomsky, who, if you're on this call, you already probably know who he is. Uh, he's a linguist, political activist, writer, probably one of the world's most prominent living public intellectuals. Whether you're a member or not, whoever you are, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, please subscribe to our YouTube page and like us on Facebook for details on our future events. The way this event is gonna work is that Professor Chomsky is gonna give a 10 minute or so speech about the current global situation. Then I'll do a few minutes of questions and then I will ask him some questions that you all have submitted already. So without further ado, Professor Chomsky, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, I think I'll make a few observations about current crises. Uh, the one that's on everyone's mind, of course, and understandably is the pandemic. Uh, one thing to bear in mind about the pandemic is that we will recover, uh, perhaps at uh, serious, maybe tremendous loss. But we're not going to recover from the melting of the uh, polar ice sheets and other processes underway that may are predicted to make much of the world uninhabitable within a couple of generations, maybe 50 years. Uh, that's going to happen if we stay on our present course with much worse to come. Uh, there's lots to say about that and other comparable risks to survival, including the very serious growing threat of terminal nuclear war. Uh, I'll put that aside here and keep to the pandemic. Uh, come back to it later if you'd like. There are a few things to keep in mind about the pandemic. One is it's very likely to recur, uh, probably worse than this one, exacerbated by the impact of global warming. Uh, if we don't come to terms with the causes and prepare, it could be much more serious than this, maybe horrendous. Uh, the causes are known, and it was known 15 years ago. Uh, scientists are telling us right now that they do know how to prepare for the next pandemic if we decide to do something about it. It was also known in 2003, after the SARS epidemic, uh, another coronavirus epidemic, which uh, uh, was contained. Uh, scientists pointed out it's going to recur, we better do something about it. Uh, but it's not enough to just know. Somebody has to do something. Well, who? Obvious possibility is the huge drug companies. Uh, they're bloated with profits, thanks to the neoliberal trade programs, which afford them exorbitant patent rights of the kind that have never existed before. These are the uh, uh, highly uh, uh, interventionist uh, so-called free trade agreements. Uh, so they have plenty of money. They have all the resources, but they can't do anything. They're blocked by capitalist logic, which says you have to maximize profit. Uh, if you listen to Milton Friedman, that's the only thing you're allowed to do. So they're blocked. There's no profit in planning for a catastrophe 
uh, 10 or 15 years from now, uh, making a vaccine that if it works will be used once a year, you don't make any money on it. So they're out. Well, there's another possibility. Uh, the government could step in. They have extensive resources, uh, the United States, the National Institute of Health, they do most of the work anyway. So they could step in, and similarly in Britain and other countries, uh, they could step in and do something about it. But that's blocked. It's blocked by uh, uh, processes that are personified in two individuals, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, who gave formally initiated the neoliberal plague that the world has been suffering under for the last uh, 40 years. Uh, you recall Reagan's inaugural address where uh, he said, uh, government is the problem, not the solution. So the government's not allowed to do anything. Uh, translating that into English, it means that decisions have to be removed from the public arena where the public has some sort of influence and moved into the hands of unaccountable private tyrannies where the public has no influence at all. Uh, curiously, that's called libertarianism in the United States and England, but put that aside. Anyway, with the version of savage capitalism that was introduced around 1980, the governments can't step in. And that has an effect. So I'll just read you a recent discussion of discovery of a scientific paper discussing, discussing uh, vaccines. It says, the US military played a significant role in developing more than half of the vaccines invented last century, including 18 of 28 vaccines for preventable diseases. Vaccines for flu, measles, rubella are only the most famous. But why the military? Because the US system of industrial and educational policy has to work under the facade of the military, because that's the way you get appropriations approved by Congress. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the military, any more than the uh, interstate uh, highway system, the defense highway system has to do with the military. So that means the government uh, produced uh, most of the vaccines, um, most gave, and what's more, did the basic research, uh, the difficult part of the work on the, uh, what was done, picked up and completed by pharmaceutical corporations. But they're blocked by neoliberal savagery. So there's no way to proceed. Uh, in fact, after those two major, and that we still live with that. So that's going to block work for the next, to block the next pandemic. We don't have to, it's not a law of nature, but that's the system we're embedded in. Well, after that comes the question of the reaction of individual governments. They vary. So if you look at the, uh, the uh, Trump administration has been in office for four years, it's more than usually committed to the, it's the primary constituency of primarily the Republican Party, uh, enormous wealth and corporate power. That's the prime constituency. 
Now there's a farcical pretense of populism, but we can put that aside. It's perfectly obvious from the legislative agenda. So from the first moment that uh, Trump came in, he began to defund the Center for Disease Control and other institutions uh, committed to public health. Uh, the rich and powerful don't make any money from those, so they can be disbanded. Uh, there were programs, uh, government programs, working to try to identify new coronaviruses. Uh, some of them were working in China with Chinese scientists investigating bats, which are the source of many of them. Uh, Trump canceled them, uh, all the programs. He's continued to cancel more uh, after the pandemic began. So the US was uniquely vulnerable. That's one extreme. It has the worst record in the world. Uh, other countries listened to the information coming out of China. By mid-January, shortly after uh, pneumonia-like symptoms had been discovered, the Chinese scientists uh, identified the coronavirus, uh, sequenced the genome, sent it to the entire world through the World Health Organization. Uh, countries that governments that cared about their populations reacted at once. Uh, Asia, Oceania, and they have the situation pretty much in control. Uh, Europe dithered, but finally most of them began to do something. Varied results, I don't have to tell you, in Britain, which was the worst in Europe. Uh, the uh, United States was way behind as the worst record. Uh, you can kind of see the logic that lies behind uh, ultra-reactionary neoliberalism by looking at Trump's budget. He produced a budget for the coming year. Fe Mid-February, pandemic is raging, although he's telling everyone it's just a cold. Uh, pandemic is raging, here comes the budget. It calls for cutback in spending in some areas, increase in spending in other areas, cut further cutbacks for the center of disease control and for other health-related components of the government, increased funding in subsidies for the fossil fuel industries that are uh, working, dedicated to working to destroy the possibilities for organized life on earth. Well, that's, uh, that's the situation. They're not laws of nature. There are solutions. But as long as the public is passive, uh, conformist, uh, the rich and powerful who are relentless in pursuit of their goals are doing it now, they will prevail. Uh, the end result will be even worse than now. Uh, those are the choices that people have to face. I see I've made my 10 minutes, so I'll stop. <laughs> well, thank you very much for those 10 minutes, uh, Professor Chomsky. Just picking up on um, one thing, the beginning that you said of your speech, you mentioned other sort of tail risks like nuclear war or climate change. Do you think this pandemic will mean that kind of societies and governments be more ready to deal with things like this in the future? Or do you think we're not going to learn any lessons from this? Well, we see how governments are dealing with them. Actually, governments vary. Take, take uh, environmental catastrophe. Uh, every government is doing something about it. 
not enough, but at least something. The US is actually doing more than anyone else. The US is dedicated to destroying the climate. Repeat, dedicated to destroying the climate. The Republican Party is the most dangerous organization in human history. That is devoted to maximizing fossil fuel use, uh, opening up new areas for exploitation, eliminating all regulations that mitigated the uh, threatening, in fact, incredible consequences. And it's doing it for a very simple reason. It is serving its main constituency. Great wealth, corporate power. They think this is fine. So therefore we race to destruction. Uh, let's take nuclear war. It's interesting that it's very hard to get anyone to think about it. So during the entire campaign in uh, Britain and the United States, two campaigns, and not a word about it, uh, barely a comment here and there. It's the, along with global warming, it's the major threat to existence. Uh, anyone who has looked at the record for the past almost 75 years knows that it's kind of a miracle that we've escaped this long and miracles don't persist. So what is the world doing? Well, Trump administration is tearing to shreds the last remnants of the arms control of the regime. Europe is sitting there clucking its tongue and saying, that's not nice, Mr. Trump, but uh, we're too subservient to you to do anything. So it goes on. Uh, can't talk about it. Nobody's interested. Uh, it's a, a disaster in the making. Again, it, I don't know if you want me to run through the details, but as you know, uh, Trump just uh, last August dismantled the Reagan-Gorgachev uh, INF treaty, which had significantly reduced the threat of nuclear war. And to show that he was serious, uh, he immediately launched, uh, authorized the military to launch uh, missiles that violated the treaty. That's telling the Russians, uh, please don't hesitate to develop weapons to destroy us. Military industry is ecstatic. They're getting huge uh, grants to create new weapons to destroy everything. And a little bit down the road, they're uh, salivating at the new contracts that'll come to develop some hopeless means to defend yourself against the new weapons we're encouraging everyone to destroy. Uh, next on the chopping block is uh, uh, the Open Skies uh, Treaty, which Eisenhower initiated. That again has significantly reduced the, uh, the uh, threat of war. Next is the New START Treaty. Uh, the Russians have been pleading for negotiations to renew it. It's due up uh, early next year. Trump administration said, we're not interested. Uh, okay, if that goes, that's the end of the arms control regime. Uh, everyone's free to uh, produce as many weapons as they like. Uh, I should say, though, I'm talking about Trump, but Europe's doing nothing. They could, but they aren't. The Democratic Party is not that different, frankly. They wouldn't go this far, but they're not that crazy. Uh, but uh, that's another thing there. Now, again, 
there are obvious solutions in these cases but they're not going to happen unless an energized organized public gets directly engaged otherwise those who are relentlessly pursuing the interests of power and profit will create the world they want thank you very much for that as well so um, one thing that you um discuss pretty extensively in your uh introductory remarks was how capitalism prevents the possibility of creating new vaccines. Something that has been discussed quite a lot recently is um, antivirals. So um, Gilead Pharmaceuticals uh, have an antiviral called Remdesivir, uh, which tries to target the coronavirus. Do you have much hope in these sort of private sector solutions to disease, or do you think they're a distraction? We have to be a little careful. First of all, the uh, Remdesivir was like everything else, was delayed developed primarily on the basis of public, public initiative. The tough, hard initial research was done at the NIH and it's handed over to a corporation who wants to sell it at an exorbitant price, huge price, which they are permitted to do by the, uh, 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 the uh, World Trade Organization uh, agreements, which provide them with uh, ridiculous patent rights. In this particular case, after it seemed to show some positive results, the government did step in and essentially order them to uh, make it available at a reasonable price. It's worth knowing that since 1980, the laws on the books in the United States require the federal government to intervene to ensure that drugs are available at a reasonable price. Of course, Reagan wouldn't do it. Clinton wouldn't do it. Successors wouldn't do it. They're not following US law, but it's right on the books. So if they want to, they can do it. And in this case, they did. So maybe Gilead, the producer, will make it available on reasonable terms, meaning giving the public back a small proportion of what the public paid in taxes to have this made available. Now that's the way capitalism functions. It's massive subsidies for the rich, uh, uh, penalties for the poor, the government. Uh, it's, it's true all over the economy. Take what we're now using, computers, internet, uh, satellites. Where did that come from? Public spending. The lab where I was working at MIT in 1950s, publicly supported, uh, created the, that, that's the kind of place that and other research labs like it, uh, were created computers, uh, the internet, uh, the high-tech economy generally. Uh, uh, later it was turned over to private enterprise for marketing and profit. So that's the way it works, uh, the whole, pretty much the whole economy. But in this case, uh, uh, Big Pharma has, to the extent that they are allowed to be in control, the drugs, even if they exist, are going to be priced out of anybody's reach. Of course, that's what you do if you're a business. That's very interesting. Thank you. Um, something you touched on there when you mentioned your work in the 1950s is kind of the remarkable length and consistency of your career. So you've mentioned in the past, you've had kind of largely consistent political beliefs since you were quite young. Is there anything that's cha kind of you've changed your mind about recently, either in connection to coronavirus or something else 
anything that kind of something you believe now that you didn't believe a few years ago? Nothing very profound. I'm sorry to say that my basic views haven't changed much since childhood. Of course, I've learned a lot more. There's much more to discover. I wouldn't have predicted in the 1970s the extreme savagery of the neoliberal period. Now, that was a surprise. And it's both Democrats and Republicans. So take, say, I'll talk about the United States because I know it better, but the same things happened in England. In 1980, Reagan comes in. First act, destroy the labor unions, uh, introduce scabs, illegal in just about every country. Now, Thatcher did exactly the same, destroy the labor unions. That's understandable. There, uh, the way in which the general public can advance their own interests. They've been in the forefront of uh, uh, social welfare programs, uh, decent conditions for working people and so on. So we've got to get them out of the way. That makes sense. But they did other things which are a little surprising. I'll take Reagan again. Uh, right now, as I'm sure you know, there are tens of trillions of dollars, not small change, uh, which are, are robbed from the public by uh, tax havens and stock buybacks. But up until 1980, there weren't any. In fact, they were illegal. And the Treasury Department enforced the law. So no tax havens, no stock buybacks to enrich management and uh, rich shareholders and rob uh, the public. Uh, Reagan eliminated them. Comes along Clinton, made it worse. Under the uh, Rubin uh, Summers uh, deregulation mania, they just extended it. And it goes on through the through this millennium. Trump, uh, it's getting worse. It, the, the fact that the leadership would so utterly subordinate themselves to concentrated private wealth and power, that came as a surprise. Maybe I was naive. They had the opportunity, so they used it. I should have understood that. Uh, now we're in a situation where what you see is almost indescribable. I'll take the United States again. It's a pandemic raging. We need vaccines. Everybody understands that. How does Trump react? By firing the chief scientist who's in charge of vaccine production in the government. Why? Because he dared to make some critical comments about the quack medicines that Trump is advertising in his tweets. Uh, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, there's a program, government program, which has been working with Chinese scientists to identify coronaviruses. Uh, Chinese scientists are going deep into caves to try to locate bats. It's very dangerous work. They're getting, they're the main source of coronaviruses. They're finding thousands of new ones. US scientists are working with them. It's, uh, it's all stored in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, best in the world. But Trump canceled the program. Why? Because he's desperately flailing about to find some scapegoat 
to cover up his crimes against americans which are big and one of them is bash china so since this program is working with china we have to kill it to make sure that the threat of coronavirus will be much worse uh, there's a lot more that isn't amazing to me is not being discussed uh, one of the ways in which trump is trying to find some way to cover up his crimes is uh, to attack the world health organization where the grounds are too derisory to discuss but he's defunded it and his administration like Pompeo, has made very clear that they want to destroy the organization uh, that's a possible way to improve his electoral prospects by saying these horrible international people are harming us. There's a sector of the population that buys that. So, uh, what's the effect? The worst humanitarian crisis in the world is in Yemen. And people are surveyed, surviving in Yemen because of the help given to them by the World Health Organization, uh, physicians and medical services. So let them die. Africa, the World Health Organization is providing the basic support for defense against a myriad of diseases. Coronavirus comes, it'll be worse. Let them die, okay? It'll improve my electoral prospects. Do you see a word of discussion about this? This is concentrated sadism. Uh, since you mentioned my childhood, it does bring back childhood memories. Uh, you may know that in 1936, one of uh, Franco's top generals, uh, gave the slogan for Frankism, uh, down with intelligence, up with death. Okay, that's what we're living with. Destroy the sciences, do anything possible to improve your electoral prospects, uh, kill as many people as you want. Uh, that's uh, the, the top government of the world. There are others not too distant. There are others actually working to save their population. And New Zealand and Australia have pretty much controlled the virus. And Taiwan, South Korea, and Singapore, Hong Kong, but listen to the information coming from China, have it pretty much under control. If you take a look at Europe, there's some interesting lessons there too. Uh, the powerhouse of Europe, of course, is Germany. Uh, Germany did succumb to the neoliberal, they call it ordo-liberal plague, but not entirely, not to the extent of Britain and the United States. Uh, so Germany kept uh, spare capacity in hospitals, didn't keep to the strict business model, uh, spare capacity in diagnostics, so they were able to deal with the virus when it came. And they have things pretty much under control. Uh, as a country, right to the south of Germany, its name is Italy, uh, has a pretty severe uh, pandemic raging in northern Italy. Are they getting help from Germany? Uh, there's something called the European Union. Does the Union mean Germany provides medical resources for beleaguered Italy? Not so far as I can discover. Uh, fortunately, Italy can turn across the Atlantic to the powerhouse there, Cuba, uh, under US 
terrorist and economic attack for 60 years to try to crush it. But Cuba is sending doctors uh, to work in northern Italy and other places in the world where medical aid is needed. But that's called internationalism. It's the one example of legitimate internationalism. You don't find it internally to the union. In fact, Germany has been trying to block euro bonds, which might be a way to distribute the risk and support those who are suffering more. But there, are, but there is a country that's doing it. The one that's under sharpest attack for 60 years of ending the world by the reigning superpower. Is there a lesson to learn from that? I can think of a few things. So yes, if we look around us, there's a lot to learn. There are solutions, they're in hand to global warming as well. But somebody's got to do something about it. Just as someone had to do something about the pandemic in 2003, someone has to do something about the one that's coming down the road right now. The passive, conformist, obedient, sit in the corner, we know what's going to happen. So um, you say that we have solutions in hand. Um, something that's been happening a lot in recent weeks in the US and elsewhere has been um, kind of wildcat strikes at Amazon warehouses and um, in other businesses. Do you have much hope for this kind of new revival of organized labor in times of pandemic? Or do you think that the crisis is an opportunity to crush unions? Well, I think that's a very good question. But the Amazon strike, first of all, the Amazon work workplaces are about the, the worst that you can imagine. Uh, Amazon uh, workers are under extremely tight, uh, ultra tailorist uh, supervision and control. If uh, somebody, they're racing from one spot in the warehouse to another, uh, if they make a wrong turn and don't go on the prescribed uh, path, they immediately get a notice that they're demerit, they're in trouble. You stop for a second to talk to a friend, you're in trouble. They have horrible working conditions. They're first forced to work without protection so that Jeff Bezos can make the tens of billions of extra dollars that he's doing. And they did go on strike before the coronavirus about the horrible working conditions. And they had an effect. Strikes have an effect. Uh, Bezos agreed immediately to pay, I think, $10 billion into a fund for global warming and to try to make the company carbon free in a couple of decades. Not huge for him, it's penny change, but it's significant. Uh, actions have effect and that's happening elsewhere too. Uh, go back to the 1930s, let's take the United States again. In the 1920s, I was born in 1928. 1920s, the labor movement had been crushed. There had been a very vibrant, significant labor movement in the late 19th, early 20th century. It had been crushed mostly by state and corporate violence. It was killed off finally by Woodrow Wilson's Red Scare. There was almost nothing there. The uh, depression hit in 1929, took a couple of years. By 1934, five years, the labor movement was reviving uh, very significantly. 
beginning to carry out militant actions. CIO was organizing. They're moving as far as sit-down strikes. Those are very frightening to business. A sit-down strike is one instant before the recognition that we don't need the bosses. We can run this place by ourselves, get lost. It's a fragile system based on obedience and consent. Uh, there was a sympathetic administration, Roosevelt administration. So it did lead to quite significant actions. Uh, I can remember this very well. My family, my extended family were first generation immigrants, uh, working class, uh, mostly employed, the deeply involved in the rising union movement, left parties, uh, uh, even though circumstances were much more uh, onerous than they are today, there was a sense of hopefulness because we're doing something, we can get out of this, it's lacking today. But it might come back. Uh, teacher strikes, uh, worker strikes are spreading, uh, often in parts of the country that are most anti-labor, uh, and it, things could happen, could change. Uh, thinking back to the 30s, say my childhood, and remember what eventuated. There was a huge crisis, the depression, terrible crisis. Countries took different ways at, out. One of them was the way I just described. The United States, after too much hesitancy, did move towards significant steps towards meaningful social democracy. You can't use the word socialist in the United States. It's barred, it's a curse word. But it's essentially what in Europe is called a, a social democratic policy, New Deal and so on. There were other countries that reacted differently. The most important one is Germany. Let's take a look at what happened. Uh, Germany in the 1920s was the peak of Western civilization. In the sciences, the arts, literature, philosophy, is regarded as one of the world's leading democracies by political science as a model of democracy. The year I was born, 1928, Germany had an election. The Nazis ran. I think they got 3% of the vote. The next free election was 1932. The Nazis were the dominant party. They went on from being the most, the peak of Western civilization to the absolute depths of human history within 10 years. It's now returning. Uh, that's one way out. Another way out is the move to social democracy. Now, the situation is not identical now. There are plenty of differences. But there are also similarities. There are basically two ways out of the current crisis. One is the one that is being pursued by private wealth, by corporate power, that is to create a post-pandemic world, which is a harsher, more brutal, more cruel form of neoliberalism. Uh, to uh, put the uh, climate crisis to the side, maybe doing a few things, but not much, because there's not much profit in working on it, uh, to put aside the threat of nuclear war. That's one way out. It's uh, not identical to the Nazi way out, but has some resonance. The other way out is struggle for 
people's rights for more democracy for more control of institutions and move towards programs that are oriented towards the public profit the way that was taken by the united states under roosevelt other countries elsewhere now those are the choices basically the same choices in a simple phrase oversimplifying but not too much it's what's called class war uh, one side in the class war is relentless they never stop if the others stop they win no, they don't have to it's a choice wonderful that's very interesting uh now i'd like to ask you a few questions that have been submitted by our members and some members of the general public so one um, thing that a few people are curious about, so Lauren at Maudlin and Sam at Trinity were curious about was, how far do you feel your political and philosophical writings have impacted your lingu linguistic work and vice versa? How much do they interact? Yeah. Well, there's no logical connection. One can, and many do, uh, dedicate themselves to one strand and either take no position or position say totally opposite to mind on the other either way now that's perfectly possible there is a kind of deeper connection of an abstract sort uh, both in my own case at least both the linguistic work and the political activism and work uh, trace back to a concept that has deep roots in the Enlightenment, uh, early modern science, uh, uh, Descartes and others, uh, the even uh, the recognition that the core of human nature, core part of human nature, is a kind of an instinct for freedom and creativity. You see it in language, the core of human language recognized by Galileo and his contemporaries, uh, uh, by Descartes, by uh, later thinkers, Wilhelm von Humboldt and others, the core of human language is what's been called its creative aspect, the capacity to produce new expressions of thought without limit, uh, uh, having nothing to do with uh, virtually nothing to do with training or habit, they're very marginal, uh, to do it out of our creative instinct in ways that are appropriate to situations, but not determined by them. Uh, as the Cartesians put it, you're impelled, you're uh, induced to act in certain ways, but not compelled, it's your free choice. Well, that's essentially the roots of modern authentic libertarian thought i'm not talking about what's called libertarian today authentic libertarian thought uh, rousseau's second discourse uh, humboldt's critique of state action uh, classical liberalism on to the uh, later movements which picked up the mantle the anarchist movements and so on well their core concept is that any form of authority is has a burden of proof unless it can justify itself it's illegitimate 
should be overcome okay uh, because human dignity and freedom and creativity are the fundamental uh, object that we want to preserve and enhance educational systems are the same and so on so there's a kind of commonality but you can't draw any uh, deductive conclusions from commitment to one to the other yeah so i'm Picking up on that kind of question of proof and evidence, uh, there's a question about this from Emma from Emmanuel College, Cambridge. She asks, can the concept of UG, universal grammar, be proven any more concretely than it has been? Sorry, oh, sorry. Um, can the concept of universal grammar be proven any more concretely than it has been? Yeah. Well, the concept of universal grammar is a little bit misunderstood outside of the uh, places where people work on it, not many. A universal grammar for the last 50 or 60 years has been used in a technical sense. It borrows from the traditional notion but modifies it within a different framework. A universal grammar traditionally meant uh, principles and properties you can find in all languages. It doesn't quite mean that now. What it refers to is the biological endowment, genetic endowment, that uh, enables you and me to do what we're now doing, but is totally lacking in every other organism. So humans have a specific faculty of language, uh, part of our biological endowment. It's a species character. As far as we know, it's common to the species. Now, there's no group differences that are known. Uh, a child born in Cambridge uh, who grows up in with a Papuan New Guinea tribe will know their language and conversely, we know of no differences. It's unique to humans. Now, there's nothing there's nothing closely analogous, let alone homologous in any other organism. It's apparently developed pretty much along with Homo sapiens couple hundred thousand years ago. The universal grammar is just the name for whatever that biological endowment is. Now there's the research over the last 60 or 70 years, at least the kind that I'm personally interested in, has been primarily devoted to trying to determine what the system is. The early proposals back in the 50s were extremely complex. Uh, the main the uh, goal then was just with the new approach to language to see if you could just account for the massive new discoveries that were coming along. It had been thought, thought that almost everything was known. As soon as we started working on generative grammar, it turned out nothing was known. Uh, you had to start almost from scratch. So uh, lots of new things were being discovered. You had to see, can I find mechanisms that will enable me to capture them? They were way too complex, everybody knew that. Now, the main task over the years has been to reduce the complexity to show you can get deeper results with simpler, more general mechanisms. Finally reached a point in the 1990s when I think we're coming close to something like genuine explanations. That is uh, principles of universal grammar, which are simple enough so that you can give a plausible evolutionary account of their origin and that 
alone are able to account for many of the most striking features of language. so that's universal grammar it's not what people usually mean by the term. thank you so i'm returning to politics a bit uh holly from christ college asks do you think that the uk labor party has a hope left to be a vehicle for legitimate change well correct me if i'm wrong you know more about it than i do but i've been following as much as i can as far as i understand it the corbynite party expanded very quickly was on the move to becoming a membership party for the first time long time that did very well in 2017 surprising everyone biggest victory in labor's history uh, moving on the party's programs seem to remain popular when i look at yougov polls about people's preferences it seems that the policies that the corbynite party introduced are still popular it faced a disaster in the last election so there seems to be a major gap between what happened to the party and what happened to its principles okay if we look at what happened to the party there are a number of things for one thing it was under enormous attack from the parliamentary party uh, new labor you know the old guard they wanted to destroy it this uh, it was pretty obvious before but after the revelations of this uh, latest 800 pages of documents it's pretty hard to deny same across the media uh, hatred of the party went all the way as far as the guardian uh, then came this uh, assault about anti-semitism almost complete fraud you know there's some anti-semitism in the labor party less probably than almost anywhere else in english circles but a huge campaign was launched you know, based on outrageous fabrications they were exposed over and over again very good work on it uh, what there was you know was marginal it was mainly an attack on the party for being daring to be supportive of palestinian rights not allowed okay uh, they handled it very badly uh, corbin is a very decent human being he's not a fighter he couldn't he couldn't respond so he just let it pass uh then came brexit corbin just couldn't take a position he couldn't say yes couldn't say no put it off uh, uh, deflected it in one way or another uh, it didn't work for the f former labor constituency now, there's a deeper problem there the labor had not been organizing effectively in its old constituency in northern former industrial areas uh, didn't take much for them to switch to somebody who seemed to be offering them pie in the sky uh, somehow brexit will solve all your problems not making words but at least they were saying something well all of this led according to polls to extreme dislike of corbyn personally and uh, drifting away of support now can it come back well if it's true that the policies still have support then a different approach can 
lead to a comeback and lead to an authentic participatory party that is devoted to needs and interests of the general population can happen. Um, but it's going to take a lot of work and reflection and self-criticism and uh, 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 analysis of what happened. Yeah, so um, one thing that the new Labour leader, uh, Keir Starmer, has tried to do in his first months has been to brand uh, Labour a more patriotic party. So I think that's in response to kind of some of the media criticisms during last election about uh, terrorism and other issues. Um, do you think that progressive patriotism is a productive angle for the left in Britain or a dead end? What's patriotism? Is it my country right or wrong? Or I want to make my country better? Which kind of patriotism do you want? As far as I see it, people like Corbyn are the true patriots. You don't have to wave a sign saying, I'm patriotic, here's the Union Jack. That's not patriotism. Uh, any uh, person in a totalitarian state can do that. If you are if you seriously care about your country, you'll criticize what's wrong, try to improve what's right. Uh, actually, there is an international movement just beginning. Its first was opening was yesterday, in fact, which is dedicated to true internationalism and authentic patriotism in this sense. That's the progressive international that was launched officially yesterday. And of course, there's no mention of it in the United States, some in England, some in the continent. Uh, was, it was initiated by Bernie Sanders in the United States and by Yanis Varoufakis in uh, Europe, the founder of the M25 movement. The, a transnational European movement, which is seeking to salvage what makes sense in the European Union and to overcome the very serious flaws. Uh, they're bringing in the Global South, many representatives from Africa and Asia, elsewhere. It could be, again, this depends on people's commitment, but it could be the basis for a move towards genuine internationalism, mutual aid, uh, uh, progressive policies, uh, overcoming the rot of the neoliberal period and moving on, not just to what was, but what can be much better, can happen. It's only one of two internationals that are developing. There's another one. Uh, take a look at the chaos and Trump's White House. It's a little hard to determine any coherent strategy, but there is one. Uh, it was formally uh, described frequently by Steve Bannon. It's obvious in what's going on. Construct a reactionary international based in the White House, which will bring together the world's most reactionary, harsh states. So in the Western Hemisphere, leading candidate is Brazil under Jair Bolsonaro, who's a kind of a pathetic Trump clone. So Brazil will be a major party. In the Middle East, uh, uh, Al-Sisi, Egypt, 
the most brutal dictatorship in Egypt's history there. Trump's favorite dictator, as he puts it, they're a natural member of the Gulf family dictatorships. Uh, nice people like MBS, they're members. Uh, Israel's a core member, shifted so far to the right, you need a telescope to find it. It has had tacit links with the Gulf dictatorships for a long time. They're now coming out in the open. We'll go further east, uh, Modi's India is a very natural candidate. Modi is devoted to destroying uh, Indian secular democracy, uh, instituting a ultra-right uh, uh, Hindutva, uh, ultra-nationalist Hindu uh, uh, control, uh, crushing Kashmir, Muslim population within, obvious member. Uh, move to Europe, uh, Orban's Hungary, turning into a dictatorship, they're highly welcome. If uh, Neil Farage could win in England, the perfect member, Boris Johnson, vacillates too much. Uh, Salvini in Italy and former Northern League, the obvious members. So put this together under White House direction, the progressive international is a counter to it. Um, same class wars before. Question is which will prevail. Uh, that depends on the world population. At the level of states, the reactionary international has all the power. At the level of people, it's very different. But as always, depends whether the people will react. And the rich and powerful are nervous, very nervous. Uh, you may have seen uh, about a year ago, about 150 top US executives, uh, CEOs of major banks, uh, corporations and so on, that came together and issued a manifesto. The manifesto basically said, yes, we realize we've been making mistakes uh, during those neoliberal years. We've been profiting enormously and harming everybody else. That was a mistake. We're not going to do that anymore. Uh, we're going to be to devote ourselves to stakeholders, workers, communities. We're really nice guys. Uh, uh, trust us. Uh, now we're on a better path. But that was interestingly duplicated at the latest Davos meetings. Uh, Davos, as you know, uh, every year the people who uh, are called the masters of the universe uh, get together in Davos, Switzerland, uh, go skiing, uh, have parties, uh, tell each other how wonderful they are, and so on. Uh, this last meeting was different. They did all those things, uh, but they also, the theme of the meeting was the same as the theme of those executives. Yes, we made mistakes. We realize it. We're going to become better. Uh, we're going to uh, work for you. Put your trust in us. We're going to take care of you. Now, you peasants out there, put down your pitchforks and go back home. We've got everything in hand. Now, for those who have a little memory, it's an advantage to be 90 years old. Now, you can remember the 1950s when the motto was what's called soulful corporations. The corporate, the leading intellectuals on the liberal left and so on were telling us uh, corporations have learned that they can't be just out for themselves. They're becoming 
soulful corporation. Okay, we've seen had 60 years to see just how soulful they are. And now they're becoming soulful again. Why? Because people are beating at the doors. They know there's a problem. Uh, so they have to react at least in words, maybe partially in actions. And if the pressure keeps on and new movements develop, are active, organized, things like the climate strike, others like it, they can win. I want to make a last comment about this Davos meeting, which is very interesting. Uh, the meeting opened with two keynote addresses. Uh, they ought, the video is available. They ought to be played in every classroom in the world, in every meeting in the world. They're very forceful and revealing. Uh, the first keynote address was, of course, by the master of the world. Donald Trump. He had to give the opening address. The people in Davos don't like him. His vulgarity, his crudeness, his uh, petty megalomania uh, undermine the image that they're trying to project. So it's not the kind of person they would welcome into their parties. But they gave him a rousing applause, stand-up applause, loved him. Why? Because they realize that he understands the one thing that matters. Policy has to be directed to pouring money into the right pockets, ours. As long as he does that, we don't care that much about his crazed antics. Okay, so he gets cheered. After him comes a 17-year-old girl, Greta Thunberg, quiet, factual, brief, comment describing what's happening actually, accurately, forcefully, ending up by turning to the audience and saying, you're betraying us. You're robbing us of our childhood. She's right, of course. She got some mild applause and then a little patting on the head and saying, nice little girl, uh, go back to school. We'll take care of it, don't worry. That should be shown everywhere. That's a symbol of the modern age, a dramatic symbol of it. And we should be thinking about those things. We can be on one side or the other. If we're passive, we're on the side of the master, especially in free societies like ours. Silence equals acquiescence and support. Yeah, great, thanks so much. Um, one last question, I think. So you said in response to the last question that uh, Jeremy Corbyn's um, result in 2017 was a huge victory for Labour, but given that it didn't actually produce a parliamentary majority and no Labour government has gotten the parliamentary majority since 2005, do you think that um, you know, the organizing work that you say needs to be done in formerly industrial towns in the Midlands and North of England can actually happen in the next five years? Or do you think that kind of things have got too bad, you need more time? Take the example of uh, my childhood again. Sorry to keep coming back to it. In 1929, labor movement was in the United States virtually dead. 1934, it was a raging torrent which led the way to the New Deal measures and the revival of decent, decent American society. Five years. Okay? Doesn't have to be five years now. 
can be less. We have many more ways of acting, organizing. The world is a much, there's been a lot of regression, but overall the world is a much more civilized place than it was then. A lot of battles have been won, can be put in the background. They weren't given by gifts, they were won by struggle, but they're there. Uh, the world's a much more civilized place than it was 50 years ago. Uh, young people often forget this. They think everything, you know, there's no hope. Take a look at the United States 50 years ago. Okay. Uh, I was a young man at the time, of a child. Uh, the United States had anti-miscegenation laws that were so harsh that the Nazis refused to adopt them because they were much too harsh. One drop of blood and you're black. You had a great great grandmother who was a slave, you're out. Okay. It had, of course, anti-sodomy laws and so did Britain. Britain, as you may recall, murdered one of the great uh, mathematicians of the century, a British war hero who broke the German code, murdered him because he was homosexual. And that was Britain in the 50s. Okay. Uh, in the United States, there was federal housing, government supported housing, but by law, it couldn't inc include blacks, it had to be pure white. Uh, the liberal senators who voted for that hated it, but that was the only way they could get any housing through the uh, Senate document uh, dominated by Southern Democrats. Uh, women's rights, non-existent, okay. Uh, environment, never heard of it. Uh, there's been a lot of change in 50 years and there can be plenty of change ahead, but not if you sit there uh, obedient and acquiescent. And again, in free societies, acquiescence equals support because you can do things, you choose whether to do it or not. That's a very hopeful message to end this discussion on. So um, that's really nice. Uh, thank you so much for coming, everyone. Uh, please subscribe to our YouTube page and uh, like us on Facebook. And above all, thank you to Professor Chomsky for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much.